Well, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 9. Last week, uh, we kind of deviated from Romans, looked at Mark 3, the man with the withered hand, and really more than anything, kind of sp- you know, use Romans 9 as a springboard where Paul says there uh, his commentary on the Jews, and he says, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And, and really kind of, in a sense, moved away from this context, but just talking about being honest with ourselves. That first, more than anything else, we have to be honest about what we think, and is the Holy Spirit testifying to our thinking? Uh, is it congruent with the Word? Is it something that we can look at and say, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of you know, Jesus' stamp of approval. And when we're not um, honest with ourselves, that it stunts our growth, it stunts our relationships with God, with one another. And then ultimately, after we're honest with ourselves, we can be honest with God, and then we're able to be honest with others and then grow in that. Um, two weeks ago, though, we looked at Romans chapter 8, with the end of it, and we had that section there, uh, and we'll go ahead and read it now, where he says in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, and uh, excuse me, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we looked at that in the the kind of the dynamic and the way that it proceeds through. Because there's a lot of different ideas in Christianity about predestination. Um, And a lot of those ideas, I would say, and some might disagree with me, that they're derived from taking verses out of context and not necessarily considering the whole scripture as we look at things. There's a lot of our Christian brethren that we love and they love us, and it's fine uh, to an extent that would say that God before time predetermined who would go to hell and who would go to heaven, and not in the sense of God knew it, but in the sense he decided it. In other words, if you were to sit down with them and, and kind of say, no, what do you believe? Uh, they would say that essentially a soul is created, and from the moment of that soul's creation, that person is destined to hell. That God says in his sovereignty, in his desire to demonstrate who he is in his power, that he decides from the, the very beginning that that person has, does not have a legitimate uh, opportunity for salvation, but that in fact that person uh, is, has a destiny given to them, in God's sovereignty and his understanding and wisdom, and that they will just go to hell. Uh, it's called Calvinism. It's called Reformed theology uh, and or double predestination. There's a lot of different uh, things for it. Although Calvinism is a bit of a ripoff because if you read Calvin's writings, he doesn't take it that far, typically. But um, where we would look at that, or I would look at that, I don't know where you're at, I don't want to speak for you, and I don't think at all that that's what Romans 8 is, chapter, chapter 8 is saying. I don't think that that's what Jesus was saying. I don't think that we can take a look and say that people do not have a legitimate claim to the gospel. How, how God could raise himself up and describe himself as love and then say that he sovereignly just sends people to hell uh, in his wisdom. How is that love? Would you consider that love? Would the Bible define that as love? If you saw a father who just said, I'm going to treat you poorly and send you to hell so that my other children can know that I'm very powerful. I don't think any of us would congratulate that person. I don't think any of us would endorse that. And I think you'd have a hard time from the scripture validating that kind of perspective. Although people do. And and that's what we're here to talk about a little bit today. 
But if we're careful readers of what's being said here, the, the, Paul is talking this whole time about how a person gets saved and how a person gets sanctified, right? So saved, the idea that I'm justified before God, uh, that he looks at me not only as innocent but as righteous, right? That I am right in his sight. And that that occurrence occurs, that happens, or is even available to me because that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. And in 1 John chapter 2, it's, it's very clear uh, I'm not going like, to try to refute all the five points of Calvinism and TULIP, but the L in TULIP stands for limited atonement. And it's the idea that, uh, or Reformed theology, how you want to label it, it's the idea that the atonement, the blood that was shed, was limited. But if we return to 1 John chapter 2, John tells us very clearly, it says that he died not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole cosmos, the whole world. The Greek word there is cosmos, the created universe. See, the, the atonement is not limited. It wasn't for certain people, the elect or the called or however you want to label them, and then other people just didn't get a part of it. You have to do some incredible scriptural gymnastics to come to the point where you say cosmos means the elect. That's, it's impossible. It's not, it's not even in the realm of scriptural possibility. My, my goal is not to like poop on Calvinism or something today. My point is to look at what is the security that we have in Christ, and that's what Romans 8 is talking about. The fact that, that all the way back in chapter 4, 5, and 6, 7, 8, we've, been, we've died to the law. The law no longer has jurisdiction over us. The law is that by which sin is imputed. So if we have died to the law, the believer never and can never again have sin imputed to them. And so in the conclusion of chapter 8, where he says, look, all things are working together for good for those that love him, literally are presently loving him, so that's important, and we'll talk about that, are presently loving him and are called according to his purpose. So the, 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 the point of chapter 8, and I'm, I'm going on about it now because it's essential to chapter 9, the conclusion of chapter 8 is that everything for the person who's trusting and walking with God is working for their good. Now, the only reason we want to put that uh, caveat in there is that God has always, through history, been working things for human good, right? He always has. From, the, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21, whatever the last verse is, he's always been doing that, right? But for, in order for everything to work for good for me, if I'm not in the present moment loving him, A, it doesn't mean I'm not saved, right? Or we'd all be unsaved. Uh, two, it's the idea that I have an option of whether or not I let God work things together for good for me, don't I? If I have... Uh, uh, a difficulty in my life, if there's something I'm wrestling with, something that may not be fixable right away by me or someone else, how I react to that and how I walk through that is going to directly determine my mental health, my spiritual health, all of that, correct? So if I have, let's say I have a broken car, that can be a very stressful situation, right? Because we rely on our vehicles, we don't want to call other people and say, hey, can you give me a ride, even though they'd probably be just fine giving us a ride, you know, for whatever weird pride we have going on or whatever it might be, you know, all the things that we go through, but the helpless feelings we can have, the, the concern for our lives that we have, how am I going to get to my job, how am I going to feed my children, how am I going to, right? It can spiral incredibly just because it doesn't turn over right the first time. So in that moment, I have an option, don't I? I can look in that option and say, okay, this feels bad, man, <laughs> right? I don't like this. I don't want this to be happening, but ultimately, I know God can work something good out of this, right? And I get on the phone. I call my boss. Hey, I'm going to be late. Trying to get, find a ride, blah, 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 blah. I get fired. I could take that from the Lord, right? 
Obviously, if I get fired for being late one morning, either I'm already doing a terrible job and I can learn a lesson from that, or it's probably not a place I really want to work. God can do something better than that. It doesn't matter what comes our way, the cancer diagnosis, the death in the family. It's easy to talk about, and I get that. But it's still true that if I'm looking to Christ loving him, that will determine the good outcome, partially the good outcome that can occur in my life. Whereas if my car doesn't start and I just kick the door open in front of my neighbor and son of a, throw the keys on the ground and walk in the house, then they're going to look at me. What are they going to be like? Oh, I'm going to go to that dude's church. That guy has incredible peace, right? I see why he always wants me to go. It's just so, it's amazing, right? That's going to have a fruit. We've talked about that a lot. I think it's an important concept, but I don't want to just camp there. So we know that everything's working for good. That He told us, and he says, that for those who are called, and then he tells us the people that he calls, that there's something that he bases that calling on. It's foreknowledge, prognosco. It's the idea not just that he knows you like, oh, your soul will be born and you'll, be, you'll live in Long Beach, Washington or Ocean Park or whatever. No, it's that he intimately knows who you are. And because he knows you before you were born and he knows the decisions you would make, those whom he knew, whom he foreknew, he knew would choose him, he called them and he gave them a destiny. He predestined them. You know, if you're, if you're, if it seems like, like I'm an eternal security guy, but if it seems like to you, man, we've been harping on this a lot lately, is because these are, to me, the flagship verses about this. These are where the security lies, that sin cannot be imputed to a believer. Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, cannot be imputed. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation from God to the Christian. That doesn't revert in unbelief. It doesn't, it, it doesn't revert. You don't suddenly be able to have sin imputed to you. You can't swear it away. And then you have this idea that the, a Christian is predestined. It means, in the Greek, predestined. Right? Predetermined. This will happen. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus if you're a believer in Jesus, if you put your faith in him. And we've talked about that extensively. That ultimately, it, the question is, how much will we yield our soul to him now? And how much will be yielded to his fire lately? But as 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, that that person who builds with wood, hay, and stubble, worthless works, will be tried by fire, but he himself shall be saved. So I harp on it in this place at this time so vigorously, because number one, I think it's the only comfort we have. I think to try to say that fidelity in my Christian walk saves me is a radically dangerous place to be. How faithful do you have to be? Or is, are we going to say that genuineness, I genuinely want to be saved, that saves me? Or is it purely the grace of God and a free gift? So in this is conclusion that we're looking at here. He's saying, look, he, that God is working everything out for good. It's according to his purpose that he's doing this. What's his purpose? To build a bride for his son. There's a lot of uh, allegory about it, whether it's a bride for Christ or uh, a kingdom of priests or a temple for him to dwell in. We have all this very platonically intimate imagery that God gives us, a father and a son, you know, all these things to, so that we can understand what his purpose is. So God, from the beginning of, of, you know, let there be light until this very day, has worked everything always in his infinite wisdom and knowledge and sovereignty to build a bride for his son, which is you and I. There is incredible comfort in that, incredible security in that. 
Incredible that we can always know, always, 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 that God has our good in mind. Even when the worst should befall us, that we can continue to walk with him and actually know him in a very intimate way. That we can actually be able to have and, and, and be a part of, for as much as we want to, a relationship with God, a friendship with God. Uh, a father-son thing with God, a co-inheritorship, as it said there, with Jesus, that he is our Lord and he is also our friend. He's going to go on in chapter 8 there, and he's going to talk about this, and unfortunately we read it kind of short, kind of trying to get through Romans, but the fact that Paul makes these, these, all these quotes that there is nothing that can separate the believer from the love of Christ, nothing that's ever been created, nothing that ever will be created, nothing that has ever been or ever will be, including you, Nothing from heaven, nothing above the earth, nothing below the earth, no demonic power, that there is nothing that can be, that can separate us from the love of God. And this is where he picks up in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is Paul, it's a, it's a, a continuation from that original idea of predestination and of sovereignty. But chapter 9 is a demonstration of the commentary that he's working all things together for good for his purpose sake. Does that make sense? Chapter 9 is not talking about salvation. This is very important. It's talking about how God uses individuals and makes sovereign decisions in his pursuit of his purpose, which is to form the bride of Christ. Does that make sense? This is really important because if we lose sight of that, we can go to these really weird places where we say that God makes babies only to judge them and destroy them, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. That's a horrible idea. And I'm not trying to be a jerk to anybody. I'm saying like, if you really process that idea through and to try to slap the label of loving God upon that is a mockery. It's, it's, it's just it's a, it's a rejection of who he is and what he's like. He says there in chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So Paul is beginning chapter 9. And this, I, this, this doesn't seem to have much to do with sovereignty or even what he's talked about before. But he's making kind of a parenthetical personal confession here. And he's saying, I really love my people, the Jews. My people after the flesh. And he says, I care about them. And he makes the comment, he says, if I could, he says, I could want... And that's literally what it means. I could want to see myself separated from Christ so that they could find Christ. That I would find myself a curse. So he's got this supernatural love for the Jews, which is kind of interesting because if you remember in Acts, we're told that they have essentially kind of a meeting and it's agreed that Peter will be the apostle to the Jews and Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles. Every single time Paul shows up and tries to minister to Jews, what happens? They try to kill him, <laughs> right? Every single time. It's, it's one of the most fascinating things in the world to me that if you read Acts carefully, all the apostles seem to be doing just fine in Jerusalem. Paul shows up and they're like, we've got to kill this fool. But James and John and Peter, these other guys, they're chilling right away in Jerusalem and, and, and nobody seems to be bothering them much. So we have this, this, uh, this dynamic where Paul says, I just love him so much, but call, Paul, excuse me, the Lord calls him to uh, minister to other people. It doesn't mean he, he never ministered to Jews, but it was never to be the emphasis of his ministry. 
As we keep going, he says, he, 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 has, he professes this love for them. I'm sure there could be more that we could say about that. It's obviously a supernatural love. I don't think you generate something like that. That's something that you ask God for. To say, I wish I could go to hell so the rest of them could be saved is a pretty profound statement. Uh, and I'll leave you to work through that yourself because I really don't know where to go with it at the end of the day. Other than it's not possible uh, to do that. But that is an incredible love to have for humans that's, that's clearly from God. But then he goes on and he makes some statements about them. He says in verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to, who, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And he's, he's expressing this, he's, and it's an expression of sorrow. Because they had all these benefits. He's going to conclude this chapter by talking about the fact that the Gentiles received God's righteousness because they sought it by faith. But Israel, in general, missed out on God's righteousness because they pursued it by works of the law. And they didn't look to faith for it. They looked to themselves to try to accomplish something. And you can see why their behavior came such as it is. And we talked a little bit about that last week, as how the Pharisees had a very righteous beginning and they ended in some pretty radical um, legalism that ended in destruction for them and others. But Paul, he says, look at all these advantages they've had. Look at all this uh, revelation they had. They had the adoption, that, that God had adopted them. If you recall, um, when, when the Lord talks to them through prophets about their, how he chose them, he says, I chose you when you were a dying baby, polluted in your own blood, left alone by your mother. He says, I didn't choose you because you were, you were righteous or you were better or you were bigger or stronger. He says, I just chose you. There's, there's a righteous and a sovereign choice to choose Israel to be his representative people. But he says, you, they had the adoption. If anyone should choose Jesus, it should be the people that were adopted by God, the Father, right? And then he says, you had uh, the glory. That means they didn't, it's not that they had glory or, or glory literally means like an outshining or good opinion, but they had God's glory. They were there at the mountain. They saw the fire. They saw the consuming. They heard the voice of God. He said, you know, I'm burdened for them. That, they, that Those that had this revelation, that they would come to God. They had the covenants. You had, you know, the, the Abrahamic covenant. And then the covenant passes to Isaac and to Jacob. And then it goes on down through the ranks. But, but then you have the Mosaic covenant. You have the Davidic covenant. All these covenants that God made with Israel at different times to say what his plan was for them. And ultimately, his purpose, which was Christ to come, right, and secure and finalize the salvation of the Jews who looked forward to the cross, or to the, not necessarily to the cross, but to the Messiah coming. And then how we look back to it, that Christ came and, you know, he's, he's moving towards that purpose and they, they had all that. The fact that they had the giving of the promises to them, and he says, um, uh, skip the line, sorry, the covenants, the giving of the law. You know, this is really important. If you look at where kind of humanity came from biblically in, in, the, in the Fertile Crescent there, and you look at what... Uh, um, Nimrod and the different religion and the Tower of Babel and everything that kind of came out of that and everything. When the law came to Moses after they bring them out of Egypt, it was a revolutionary law. We talked a little bit of this on Thursday because we're going through Deuteronomy. It was revolutionary. And, and I want to be careful here because I don't, I don't want to minimize anybody's plight. 
because I, I appreciate the plight for equality. But if, if any time there was a time in history where women were property, it was that time. And it was the law that came along and said, no, 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 women, women can own land. No, 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 you have to give justice to women. Women can leave their husbands. They can get a, they can get a letter of divorce. It, women can have a say in, in what happens. It, it, was, it, was, it was revolutionary. And so when he says that, the, that they received the law, the, we can often think and go, why was the law a blessing? I mean, honestly, like, why was the Well, they received the law that, that dealt with, you know, microbes and bacteria and viruses. Because it said if you puke into a wooden bucket, you have to throw the bucket away. Why? Because they don't have bleach. Or essential oils, whatever you want to use, right? They're, they don't have that. They don't know what viruses are, right? It was the law that came along and said this. it was a blessing. It was a blessing. The law came along and said, no, you have to help your enemy because nobody was helping their enemy. It was the law that came along and said, no, you can't rip off widows. You can't rip off orphans. I mean, if you kind of do a, like a preliminary study of U.S. history, I'm not here to be political, but in their original forms, if you look at why unions started, it's because 12-year-old kids were losing arms in factories, and then the factories were just kicking them out with nothing. And so way back here, 4,000 years ago when the law is given, all of a sudden the law is saying, hey, if someone gets injured in your service, you have to take care of that person. If you have a flat roof and you don't put a fence around it and they fall off, you have to give them, you have to reimburse them for whatever it costs them. You ever wonder why there's so much tape around holes and stuff like that? We go, ah, oh, stinking OSHA. Uh. Do you know that the Levitical, Levitical law said if you dig a hole and you don't mark it off and someone falls in it, you owe them money for breaking their legs. Some of us are like, oh, blah, blah. the law did that. God's law did that. And, and Jesus summed it up by saying this, just love other people. <laughs> right? The whole law and the prophet, he says, it hangs on this one idea. Just love someone. Throw some rope around your pit. Go the extra mile. Love someone. So when Paul says, like, they get the law, it's like this big bummer thing. This was, especially in the time in which it was given, this was radical ideas. A lot of us were like, well, yeah, of course, because our nation, at least the Constitution, was founded on a lot of these values. So we're like, of course you would do Of course. But then and there, in, in, a, in a world filled with idolatry, child sacrifice, sexual worship, when the law came along, it was like, bruh. Are you serious? These were radical ideas. And so Paul's saying, man, I wish that my brethren that had all this advantage knew all these things, that they would just receive the Savior, the, the, the pinnacle of salvation, our Lord Jesus, who, who legitimizes all the other sacrifices, who finally forgives and not just blots over, literally not just smearing over sin with the blood of bulls and goats, but forgiving it and removing it from, in a sense, heavenly existence and, and, and punitive actions. And he says, I just wish they had all, I wish they would get saved. I, I want them to. They had the worship. They had ways, whether it was feasts or sacrifices, of cherishing and appreciating God. They had the promises. They had the patriarchs. 
why would just why the patriarchs? Why were they at an advantage? You know, it's funny because um, I read a uh, uh, it was kind of a blog post years and years ago, probably eight years ago or so, and um, it, it was essentially the gist of it. And it's kind of I've appreciated it because it's, I think where we want to come from as a church. And the, the title was inflammatory. It was called "Is, Su- Is Sunday School Destroying Our Children?" So you're like, "Well, okay, I'm in. I'm 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 in." And uh, so I started reading it, and actually it was, it was a really great, great post. But the point was this. In a lot of times, I'm not saying everywhere, I'm just speaking generally. A lot of times when we're talking to our kids about God, it can go something like this. Abraham was faithful, and God blessed him. Moses was faithful, and God blessed him. Jesus was faithful. David was faithful. And God blessed them. And it's a lie. Well, Jesus was faithful. But all the rest of them, it's a lie. Abraham was sometimes faithful. If you were married to Abraham and he sold you out twice for some cows and some servants, would you say, I have a faithful husband? You ever wonder why Sarah is so highly praised in the New Testament? Abraham was a chump of a husband a lot of times. He creates the weird triangle you know, thing with, with uh, Hagar having a child with her. And that creates the weird jealousy factor. Then he, he, he essentially rejects the idea that Isaac is the promised child when God says it's going to be Isaac. And he says, no, let it be Ishmael that lives before you. So the idea that just like, the, oh, you had, the, you had all the faithful guys. You have Jacob? We don't really know much about Isaac. All we know is that Isaac was like chilling in a field. And then Eleazar brings his wife back, and he's like, oh, yeah. And he takes her to the tent, slams a nose ring on her, and they're married. That's about all we got. right? And then he has Jacob and Esau. Yeah, Jacob. And Jacob's mom, super, super people of faith, right? Like an angel, like the Lord actually tells her, Jacob is going to be the promised one. He's the one that the promise is going to go through. So she knows. Like his whole life she knows. And then she, you get her when Isaac's about to die, and she's like, yo, Isaac's about to die. Here's what I need you to do. I will go kill a lamb, and I will pretend it's venison, and I'll make it the way your brother makes it. You go grab one of his stinky shirts from being in the field, so you smell like him. Apparently he was like a manly musk man, so you smell like him. And then let's find some sort of adhesive to put goat skin on your hands so that when your dad sniffs you and rubs your hand, which you're like, dude, Esau was a hairy dude if goat skin passes as his hand. Like, the Sasquatch is alive and well. But uh, <laughs> it is pretty impressive. But, but, but still, they come up with this whole plan to trick Isaac into giving a divine blessing to Jacob that was already promised to him years prior, decades like, what? Those are seriously dysfunctional people. And, 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 but they were the forefathers. They were the patriarchs. So why are we encouraged by patriarchs? Because they always did everything right and God blessed them? No, because they virtually always did everything wrong and God blessed them. Because there were constant times and struggles in their life where they did not walk in faith. They did not do what was right. And God was faithful to them. And it's the same picture for Israel. Israel is constantly unfaithful. 
constantly worshiping Baal and Ashereth and all these other different local gods of the areas. Constantly. And God is constantly faithful to them. And it's just, he says, I, I have a burden for these people. They had all this and they, they're not following the Lord. They're not getting saved. They're not receiving what, what ultimately mattered. And then in the end, he says there, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And he sums it up by saying that the Christ came from their lineage. Also, just as a side note, this is a very excellent verse. There's a lot of people that want to deny the deity of Christ. And they have their, their translations, uh, namely, like for example, the New World and so forth, that will change this verse. But the Greek reads out in the vast majority, like all, there's no even like disputed manuscripts on this. It literally says, what we have translated here in the ESV, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. This is an excellent verse to point out that Paul is saying that Jesus is God. And so when people want to dispute that, here's a place where you can turn and say, no, no, no. We love you. It's cool. But Jesus is absolutely God. The Trinity is absolutely a real thing. And, and here's, here's where one, one of many places that we see it. Then he's going to go and he's going to speak. Now he's going to start talking about sovereignty again. He says, but it is not as though the word of God failed. So he, he poses this question. Well, if Israel had the prophets and they had the law and they had God's glory and they had the worship, they had all these things, then if they're not following Jesus, they're not following God today, did his word fail? Did the promises fail? Did, did somehow the promises get weak or did something bad happen? So he, he's putting that question forward. And then he says, the answer is no, and it's, it's a way that it's worded in the Greek. It's, it's a, essentially a lot of these times, well, all the times that Paul asks these questions, uh, it's always in a tense and in a way where it's, it's expected to have a negative response. It's obvious, we don't necessarily have that in English. We kind of do, but it's more emphatic in, in Greek language. But so he's saying there, uh, the answer is no. For, he says, for all who are descendant from Israel belong to, uh, excuse me, not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel. Now, this is the second time this has been introduced in, in Romans, and even Jesus spoke of it when the, the Pharisees are mocking him and, and basically calling him a, a, an illegitimate child. They say to him, well, we know who our father is. We're children of Abraham, and they're, they're sliding Jesus. They're saying, you don't actually know who your dad is because we all know it's not Joseph. Right? They're, they're mocking him for it. And he says, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So this, this idea that, that uh, seminal lineage gains favor with God is a farce. It's not true. Now, did Israel, they were exposed to all those things, and they had all those things, but they, if they did not walk in faith with those things, they did not benefit them. Does that make sense? It benefited them in the, in the sense that they were all going to eat manna and still follow around uh, for 38, 39 years, follow around a, uh, a pillar of uh, uh, fire at night and then a, a shroud of, of, of mist during the day. They had all that, but they weren't truly Israelites, not in the sense of God's calling and what God wanted for them, which was a nation to possess his presence and then give that to other people, right? So he's making now, this is, a, this is a kind of a twofold statement. It's, he's going to make it in, in a seminal way, meaning... Um, well, the word that he uses there is sperma. So the idea is someone who is the literal physical relative of another. 
uh, that, that not everybody who, who was a descendant of Abraham was his sperma, but he's also going to use a second word here where he says that not everybody uh, born of Abraham is their technon, which would be born of. It's over and over again in the Greek where you see uh, children, a lot of times it's, it's born of God or born of so-and-so, somebody who is truly their child, if that makes sense. So he's going to launch into that now. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children, and this is technon, not all are born of Abraham because they are his sperma, offspring. So not, what he's saying literally is not every single child who was born to Abraham was actually a born one of Abraham. Clear as mud, right? The idea is not every child that was from him, his sperma, was actually considered to be born of Abraham for the sake of the promise. And he's going to go on. He says, but through Isaac shall your sperma be named. So Isaac was the offspring by which the lineage of Jesus would be physically. This, mean that it, this means that it is not the uh, technon, the born ones of the flesh, who are the technon of God. But the technon of the promise, the children of the promise, the born ones of the promise, are counted as the sperma. So what he's saying is, it's the people that are based on promise. There's two ways that this is true. The people that are of promise in that, who receive the promises that God have for them of righteousness, which is by faith, those are true children of God and true Israelis. And there's also here an exclusion that, and because he's about to talk about God's, this is a preamble to God's sovereignty and who he chose out of Abraham's children. Does that make sense? So he's preparing us for the fact that God did make sovereign choices. So he goes on, he says in verse 9, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. What he's saying is that God sovereignly chose a lineage for Israel. He chose a spiritual lineage for all believers of all time, Israeli believers. When I say Israeli believers, I'm not talking about Christians who used to be Jews. I'm talking about Jews that actually walked with God by faith. Because it was always known, it was taught, that when you sacrifice an animal, that that blood, the blood of bulls and goats, it never could forgive sin. It could not. They all knew that. The word that was used was blotted. It blotted out sin. Literally, the blood smeared over sin. But when you read of Jesus returning in the prophecies of Messiah, he does away with sin. The most common usage is he bears our iniquity, our avon, that he himself bears it, carries it. In other words, he took the consequences of our crooked ways that smash us down. That's the imagery of the Old Testament. So every Jew who was a true Jew out of a seminal sense, and meaning not just by descent or race, was declared a true Jew by God and God alone between them based on the fact that they had faith that, yes, they practice this law now and these sacrifices and the red heifer and the whole nine yards, the sprinkling of the blood, the Day of Atonement, all of those things, but that they pointed to the Messiah that would come. And his blood didn't 
smear sin, it didn't smear blood over sin, it forgave it and bore it away. Does that make sense? So every true Jew, that's how they walked. And we're not here to decide who that is. We know that in the days of Elijah, there were, well, we don't know, but the estimates are that Jews were about two to three million people, and God's statement about that in 1 Kings uh, 17 and 18 to Elijah is 7,000 of those two or three million haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So I don't know what percentage that is, but it's 0.0000 something. Not a big percentage. So there's, there's a remnant, and actually he's going to talk about that here too. So he says that God made a sovereign choice, and, he's, and this is the promise. The promise is that Isaac will be born, and, and that Sarah shall have a son. And, and I encourage you, kind of as a rule, on your, when you're on your own and you're reading and trying to figure things out, as a rule, whenever you see a quote from the Old Testament, sometimes there'll be quotations. There's no, actually no quotations in Greek. They didn't have quotations. So uh, when you see them in your English Bible, they're just there by the translators to help you understand that this is a quote like from the Old Testament or possibly a quote from uh, literature, uh, pre-biblical literature for the New Testament. Uh, sometimes, though, you'll see, you'll read it, it'll be all in caps. Have you seen that in your Bible before? You read something, it's all in caps. That means that it's a quote from the Old Testament. So one of the best ways to understand what's being quoted in the Old Testament is to go back and look at that quote. And what you'll find is oftentimes there's a whole context behind the quote that will enrich and help you understand why Paul is pulling it out now and using it to talk about something uh, in, the, in, in his present day. Does that make sense? So he pulls this quote out, and it's from when God comes back and says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael, it's going to be Isaac. Sarah is going to have a son. It's not Hagar, it's Sarah. And he says, these are the children of the promise. These are the ones that are, that are the Jews. Now, I want to stop for a second. We've been talking about this a lot on Thursday nights. This does not mean, and we'll talk about it even more here in a second from verse 17. It does not mean that God hated or never saved or didn't love or wanted nothing to do with the people that he did not sovereignly choose for his purpose, right? This is an important idea. Just because he chose Jacob over Esau doesn't mean that he was like, well, to hell with you, Esau. I don't care about you. In fact, when we're, as we've been reading in, in uh, Deuteronomy, what you find is that, that God tells Israel, when Israel finishes their wandering, and they're about to start heading north because they're kind of way down here, down below uh, the Sea of Galilee. And they're about to start heading north and go through. There's Edom, which is the descendants of, of Esau. And God tells them, do not war with them. Don't take anything from them. He says, I gave them that land just like I'm going to give you land. So when you go through them, you stay on the road, you pay for your water, you pay for your food, and you don't mess with them. So we have to kind of get this idea out of our head that like, and it seems to get a little thick, so we'll look at it, that like somehow when God made these sovereign cho these choices, because what are the choices for? For his purpose. What is his purpose? To build the bride of Christ eventually, to build himself a kingdom. These are not choices of who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. These are choices of the, based on God's infinite wisdom, sovereignty, and foreknowledge and love to give mankind the ability to be saved. That's what these choices are about. Very important. 
So when he says that he chose Jacob over Esau or he chose Isaac, he's not saying that I don't care about the rest of them. He's saying that I am going to work my purpose through this person, just like you and I. You and I have ministries that God has given us or wants to give us, and we get to decide if we're going to take them or not. But if God says to you, I want you, it could be anything. If God says to you, I want you to, to empty this trash, or I want you to call this person, or I want you to do this, God has sovereignly chose through his Holy Spirit to speak to you for the sake of his purpose of gathering his people together to do this thing. Does that make sense? So does that give anybody else the right to come along and say, well, why didn't you choose me to call that person? Most of us are like, God chose you, my friends. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's sovereign choices that God makes. And there's, there's nothing to be, you can't go, oh, well, he must, have, he must hate me because he didn't call me to do that. No. He just esteemed through foreknowledge that this other person would be the person to do that job. And they happened to say yes. So it's important that we understand as we get into these next sections. So the promise comes through this. <clears throat> he comes through Sarah, through Isaac, and then he's going to bring up, so that's his first example of sovereignty, that God chose Isaac. His second example is in verse 10. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Excuse me. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. You're like, oh, I knew it! Esau I hated. So in this example, Paul says this. He says, Isaac has children with Rebekah. He has Jacob and he has Esau, twins. Before they do anything good or bad, God sovereignly chooses Jacob. And they have the whole thing where like, you know, Jacob reaches out and grabs his brother's heel, and that's how he gets named in the whole nine yards, which would be very weird. I've been in a couple of births, and if I saw that, I'd be like, I don't feel good about that. <laughs> but the, so that's what happens. And so we don't have to be concerned with why that happened. We know that God blessed Esau. We know that in the end, the Edomites become the enemies of Israel. Why? Because they choose to attack Israel. There's some other interesting note th things to note here. Esau never served Jacob. You never read of that happening. And so there's something to understand. This quote, which is pulled out from one of the minor prophets, you can look it out on your own. Um, the, uh, the older will serve the wider. Jacob, how I loved Esau, while I hated. In the quote, these two things, or the, the, excuse me, one of these two things, he's speaking of them as nations. The prophet is. He's speaking to them as nations, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. So the prophet, the, the quote that's being pulled out of here, I think it's Malachi, if I remember correctly, the, 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 the quote that's being pulled out of here is a testimony about two nations. Now Paul uses that to show his sovereignty and choice. But what does it mean that he loved Jacob and he saw Esau, or that he hated Esau? We don't have time, but I wrote them down. You can turn to Matthew 6, 24, Luke 14, 26, and John 12, 25. And I'll say them again slow if you want them. But remember when Jesus is talking to the disciples? He's talking to the, actually to the, to the masses in some respects. But he says, if you're going to follow me, 
You have to hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. You have to hate them all. Now, when we read that, do we interpret that as Jesus saying that you truly need to feel a vehement loathing for your parents? Wouldn't that actually be contradictory to the Ten Commandments, for example, to honor your father, the Fifth Commandment, to honor your father and mother? So would hating them be honoring them? Didn't he rebuke the Pharisees because he said one of the things that he convicted them on, he said, you guys, you all have aging parents and they need help. And you say, I would give you my money, but it's Corbin, meaning it's a gift to God. That's what Corbin means, gift to God. He says, he says you rob your parents of money because you say it's a gift of God, but you never give it. So he uses giving money to your folks as an illustration of, of, of a conviction against the Pharisees. So when we understand what Jesus is saying in these references, he's not saying you need to hate them. What he's saying is a comparison. That in my devotion and love to Christ, my devotion and love for everything else is way down here. It's a comparison issue. It's not that he's saying you should not have affection for your parents. None of us, I think, would say that. None of us would accept that biblical interpretation. So when Paul is now quoting here a, a prophet who's speaking of nations, he's not saying that God formed Esau in the womb, because we know, right? I mean, look at the Psalms. Before we were formed, he knew us. When we were in, our, in the hidden parts, he, he formed us. I mean, these radically intimate you know, Psalms that we turn to when we're trying to address abortion or care or something like that. And now just to blow that out of the water where he was like, yeah, I made Esau, but he was pretty much junk in my eyes. I hated that guy. That makes zero sense. It is not congruent with any part of the scripture to try to come away with that interpretation. But when we look at the words of Jesus, we can say, oh, he made a sovereign choice to work through Jacob. And that sovereignty was so mighty that in comparison, he said, I hate Esau. Not the person, the nation, after it had attacked Israel. It's important that we understand these things. It's important that we look at these things. So his second example is that God sovereignly chose Jacob. And in the end, Esau responded to it poorly. He did in the beginning. You can still read about it. When Jacob sees Esau on the road, this is what a great guy Jacob is. Remember, he's going, he's, he's traveling with his family, and then he realizes that Esau's coming to meet him. And what does he do? He starts sending all of his children and all of his wives ahead of him with gifts. And he sits in the back. I mean, this is a real go-getter right here. This is the guy you want protecting your house. And, it, and then he finally like shows up and he's just like, <laughs> please. And Esau's like, no, no sweat, man. It's good. Why don't you come back and hang out with us? And Jacob's like, yeah, we'll follow you back. It just leaves him hanging. This dude is a coward. <laughs> it's wild. The patriarchs, men of real faith there. Just like us. But so he says, Jacob, have I loved? Before they did anything good or bad, Jacob was not chosen because he was this wildly brave, amazing guy. He was chosen for reasons that only God knows. And Esau, for a long time, was at peace with, with Jacob. But generations pass, and there seems to be some jealousy and some different things that take place because of the calling on the people of Israel. And later, Edom comes and attacks them. And, and then Malachi makes the statement, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated as we keep going there, he says in verse 14, what shall we say then? So what's our answer to this? 
Is, is there injustice? Excuse me. Is there injustice on God's part? Is He being unjust by making sovereign choices of how He's going to bring about His His uh, purpose in saving anyone who would come to Him? And we look at it that way. When as a side note here, when Jesus stands up over Israel, He says, "O Israel, or excuse me, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not." He doesn't say, "But my Father chose otherwise." He says, you would not. The culpability for Israel not coming and receiving Jesus was not on sovereignty. It wasn't based on a sovereign darkening of their minds. They chose the darkening. And they ignored him. And God used that. And we're going to talk about that in verse 11. God uses that choice of their darkening to sovereignly graft in the Gentiles into that tree of salvation. But see, that's why Paul, in the end of all these three chapters, is like, oh, the wondrous knowledge and wisdom of God. Who can know it? Because God literally predetermines, based on prognosco, intimate friendship foreknowledge, for lack of a better term, of all those who will receive him. He's working all these things together in all these ways, from all these places for good, to bring about his bride for his son. It's just mind-blowing. But we have to understand that he's, he's got it in control. He's the one working it out. So that he asks, he goes, is God in justice then? Is it, did he fail us? And he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, here's his answer to the question, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in 17, he talks about his third example, which is a negative one, which is Pharaoh. Now, here's the thing. It has been twisted. Notice in your Bible, if, you're, if it has it, it's either in quotes or it's all caps, where he says, I will have mercy upon, I will have mercy, right? So he is quoting Exodus 33. And Exodus 33 is where Moses is on the mountain, and he says to God, will you reveal yourself to me? Will you show me your glory, who you are, your majesty? And God's reply to Moses is, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And then he reveals himself to Moses. So if we look at this passage that he's quoting to show mercy, he's not, it's not a negative passage. It's not something he's not quoting where God just arbitrarily said to Edom or Ammon or Moab, one of the other descendants from that lineage. You know, uh, Ammon and Moab are from uh, Lot. They're descendants of Lot. He does not say, you know, it's, it's not this weird thing where he says to them, I'm crushing you because I have mercy on who I have mercy. And I have, you know what? No, that's not the context. It's a positive context. It's the context where Moses says, will you reveal yourself to me? Moses makes a conscious, autonomous decision to seek God. And God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Let me reveal myself to you. And so it is with our Savior. And so it is with this text that anyone who ever came to Jesus and just said, hey, who are you? Nicodemus, secretly, cowardly by night, comes to him. He has a lot to lose as part of being a uh, being on the Sanhedrin, comes to him and says, hey, are you really the Christ? He doesn't say, hey, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Why don't you come to me during the day? No, he says, no, you got to be born again, man. He's like, I can't fit. I don't. How does that? He's like, no, man, it's spiritual. All right? Anyone who came to God at any point ingenuous has never been turned away. It's never happened. There is a very legitimate offer of salvation to every single human being on the planet. 
And God has mercy upon who he has mercy. And he goes on, and, and you, you gotta, we have to read this as the positive comment that it, that it is. It gets advertised as like the negative comment, that God just is arbitrary with mercy. And it's like, hey, you know, I have, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and who I don't want to, nah, I don't. But that's not the, it's not the context of the comment. It's not, any, it's not the context of what we're reading. The whole context of what we're reading is that God is working all things together for good for those who are loving him and are called according to his purpose. The whole context of this whole thing is not exclusion, it's inclusion. It's not if what, it's, it's security. That's everything that we're reading here. And then when he goes on, he says, look, he, talking about God's mercy, he says, so then, so God expressing mercy, it does not depend on human will or exertion. God doesn't just share his mercy when we work hard enough for it. And he doesn't just show mercy when we will it. You can't, and so we look at that the positive, like, well, you can't do anything to get it, and you can't, you know, even if you want it, he doesn't give it to you. That's, or give it to you. That's not what he's saying. That doesn't fit the quote. It doesn't fit the context. He's saying that God's mercy is abundant, and there's no works, and there's no desire, good or bad, that brings it about. But he just shared it. He's merciful. Whenever you look at God's autobiographical statements, meaning things he says about himself to the prophets and other places, I mean, Jesus says, I'm meek. I don't constantly exercise my power to destroy. I'm meek. It's under control. I'm lowly. I don't elevate myself and try to crush others. Right? You, you look at what he, the, the, his description of himself in the Old Testament. The Lord your God is, is merciful. He's slow to anger. I mean, this is, so we, we got to get away from these weird interpretations. In, in our Bible class, we say this, don't use obscure to define plain, but use plain to define obscure. In other words, when you read something like this, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Don't use that to try to then adjust or, or feel things out in the Gospels. Use the Gospels to adjust and feel things out of what that means. Because it all fits together, right? It all has to mesh together. So we don't have to get like scared when we read something like, like, like you know, Esau have I hated and be like, oh, I don't know. What does that mean for me? Maybe he hates me. Maybe I didn't make it. What if I'm not one of the elect, right? Weird stuff. It gets to, it gets to some really weird places. So now he's going to give a third example, and this is verse 17. And he says there, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So in Exodus chapter 4, if you were to go back there and read, if I, I, I didn't write it down, but if I recall, it's like seven times, I think, where Pharaoh says, excuse me, when the scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there's seven times that God says, the scripture says that God hardened his heart. And here's, here's the thing. Pharaoh was not created, and I think we've established that from the rest of what we're, we're reading here. This is, just a, a, this is a, an example where God, in a negative sense, chose someone and used them for his glory. He sovereignly chose Pharaoh to eject his people out of Egypt. But the point is this, Pharaoh made decisions to harden his heart. He hardened his heart. God used that hardening and solidified his heart in, hardened, in, in, in being hardened for his glory 
and for the good of his people. In other words, when Pharaoh was two years old or in the womb, God didn't say, oh, this guy could get saved or he might follow me, but I'm going to predestine him for hell and I'm going to use him for evil in a sense, then do good with him and then punish him for it. That's not what he did. Every Egyptian, if you go back and you read all the plagues, every single Egyptian had a way out of those plagues. In fact, it even notes, the perfect example, it's in the cattle. When he says, I'm going to send, I think it's hail. I can't remember if it was a hail or a storm. But he says, the hail is going to come down. It destroys the crops. It's going to destroy the cattle. Any livestock you move inside, they won't die. And it said it worked for the Egyptian and it worked for the Jew. And in like manner, if you were a Jew and you were out where you weren't supposed to be and it was hailing like that, guess what was going to happen? You were going to get drilled with hail. So Pharaoh didn't have to lose his firstborn son. None of the Egyptians did. Right? Nobody had to lose their cattle. Nobody had to have frogs in their house. Nobody, they didn't have to do that. They just had to acknowledge God. Whether it was bringing the cattle inside or putting the blood on the doorposts or going to the camps of Israel when the frogs came and the flies came, whatever it might be, that's all they had to do. So the, the, the point that's being made here isn't that God just raised up Pharaoh in a sense and just, just trashed him his whole life to eventually use him and then judge him and send him to hell. This is a, a, further, a furtherance of the dynamic that's at work in 828, that God used Pharaoh for good in the lives of his purposed people. That's what he did. He's, he goes on even further, and he says there, What will you say to me then? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So he's going to switch gears here in a minute, but he just follows this thing up and he's saying, do, do any of us have a right to say that God shouldn't have done that? And the answer is no. Again, is Romans 9 talking about salvation? No, it's not. It's not saying that God chose him not to be saved, Pharaoh not to be saved. It's not saying he didn't choose Esau to be saved. It's not saying that he didn't choose you know, uh, um, Ishmael not to be saved. In fact, if you remember when Hagar runs away with Ishmael and she's laying under a bush, she puts Ishmael, I can't remember, like 50 feet or whatever it is from her. And she says to herself, I can't watch my own kid die. And then she goes and just sits under a bush. They're out of water and they're sitting there. An angel appears to her and says, the Lord sees you. And he's going to take care of you. And you got a mule of a man over there, but he's going to make him a great nation and make good on his word. So the Lord kept his word to Ishmael, kept his word to Hagar. If they got used or their nations got used later on in life and their descendants to this day trouble Israel and Israel their descendants, that was because choices they made. Not because God destined every Arab to hell. God loves Arabs. 
God wants Arabs to get saved. God wants Israelis to get saved and acknowledge Jesus. They live in the new covenant now. The next couple chapters are the fact that God's not done with them and he'll finish what he started in the millennial reign. So we're not hopefully pulling for Israel to go kill a bunch of Arabs. We're hopefully pulling for Israel to get saved and to receive Jesus and the Arabs too and stop killing each other and have peace. But we know there's there's not going to be peace. We're not voting for that, but we know it is because that's what the back of the book says. In fact, we know that actually what will happen is the entire world will get sucked into the conflict. And then we see that happening. There's some wild stuff. I don't want to get too far off here at 1201, but I mean, you, you start thinking about how much investment Russia has with, with uh, some of these other nations that are opposed to Israel. A lot. You know, a lot of the anti-aircraft, all that kind of stuff, that's all from Russia. China. And here we are back in Israel. I mean, it's, it's, it's shaping up like some serious shenanigans could go down. Stuff that none of us want to see in our lifetime. It's pretty wild. Anyway, I don't want to digress too much. So now he's, he's saying, look, <clears throat> God has every right to use people that harden their hearts, and he has every right to sovereignly decide how his purpose will be fulfilled in people that don't harden their hearts. Does that make sense? We've got to get away from this weird tulip idea that, that somehow God is just predetermined and he just arbitrarily just whatever. And we stick our fingers in our ears and scream sovereignty as if that's some sort of excuse for uh, an unloving, unjust God or at least a doctrine about him. It's crazy. I'm not saying our brethren are crazy. I think they're very genuine and I think they love Jesus and I think we'll see them in the glory. But to classify our Lord like that to me is just I can't go there with them. So he says there, he says that, uh, verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 32. Why? Because they didn't, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I want verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not purpose it by faith. But as it were, it as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I actually skipped a big part there because we're out of time. But the end result is this, that God sovereignly worked out that the Gentiles can be saved, and that was actually out of prophecy in Hosea, and God sovereignly... Uh, kept a remnant in Israel, a very small remnant, but a remnant in Israel. And by doing that, he enabled his purpose to continue throughout all of time so that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. And so we have a, a real opportunity in, in our life and in our days today with our friends and our co-workers and our, whomever we come in contact with to, to have the gospel and to share the gospel. Or if, if, if there's someone here today who's never received the gospel, it's, it's not based on uh, your works or you trying hard. It's based on do you want it? You can receive it. That Jesus Christ shed his blood for every single human being that has and will ever live. And then by simply acknowledging that, acknowledging your sinfulness, acknowledging your need for forgiveness, and his death, burial, and resurrection, 
He says you're saved. You're forgiven from your sin. You're separated as far as the east is from the west from your sins. There's no condemnation to you anymore by simply trusting in Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray. If you'd like to come up for prayer afterwards, you're more than welcome to. Um, but I hope you enjoy however much sun <laughs> we have for the next couple of days or today or whatever it is. But God bless you guys. Have your eyes open for, for kingdom opportunities because he sovereignly wants to choose you uh, for some sort of ministry. And, and I couldn't tell you individually what that is, but I know that he has great things for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the promises of it. Thank you for your amazing wisdom and knowledge. Lord, it's, it surpasses us. But Lord, we're so comforted to know that you're working everything together for good for those that are loving you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we thank you that it hasn't been by our will or our works that got us mercy. But Lord, we thank you that you're just a merciful God and you're slow to anger. Lord, we thank you that even as your word says that in Christ and through Christ that we have the ability to come into the Holy of Holies whenever we want to receive grace and mercy in a time of need. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your mercy upon us this week. You would fill us with your Holy Spirit and with boldness this week. Pray for opportunities to love people this week and to point to Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.